Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We're coming to the end of this beautiful letter that we've been in for so long now. Uh, and I have the awkward privilege this morning, as a leader in this church, of preaching to you about the value of following your leaders, uh, which is the final subject of this letter before it turns to the benediction. It's awkward because this message seems self-serving in my position. Uh, it's even more difficult, I think, because the notion of obedience and submission to human authorities doesn't sit well with any of us, at least not at first. We're Americans, by golly, right? Don't tread on me. When it comes to church leadership, our fears of authority are not unfounded. Uh, Christian churches have had at least their share of egomaniacal, exploitative, power-hungry, greedy front men, right? Papers love to expose men like that, and they have more than their share of opportunities. Prominent leaders have ended up in the headlines on what I'd call at least a semi-regular basis for financial impropriety, for their lavish lifestyles on the dime of the faithful, for sexual sin, not to mention the black cloud that's been hanging over the American Catholic Church since the clergy abuse scandal. We've got reason to be suspicious of authority. If only that kind of abusive leadership was something you read about in papers, what we know is that, what I know for a fact even, is that there, there are people sitting here in this room right now who have tasted abusive leadership in your church experience, in your, in your past. So preaching about faithful leadership and, and, and the beauty of God-given authority to a group of people with our cultural baggage and our sensibilities based on what we've read and seen. Well, the best analogy I saw, a pastor said it would be kind of like preaching on the, the beauties of submission to police authority to a group full of people who had just seen video of the Rodney King beatdown or who had seen video of civil rights era Birmingham police turning the water hoses on the protesters, right? But... We owe it to to God who inspired this text. We owe it to ourselves who need what this text promises. To look this text about leadership and submission square in the face. Not overlooking the ways it can be abused. But appreciating the ways in which God intended godly, faithful leadership to liberate us, not abuse us. Faithful leadership in the church is a gift of God that's designed by him on purpose for our good. And I think what this section shows us, what we're going to look at today, is how we're meant to follow faithful leaders, what it would look like to follow them well, and also where we're meant to follow faithful leaders. In other words, what faithful leaders will be aiming at in their leadership of us, where they'll be looking to take us. The text is a little bit... A, a, a little bit strange in the way that it's set up. It, it starts with a leadership verse. Then it's a sort of riff on the beauties of what Jesus offers us and a call to go to him, to what he offers us, and then comes back to leadership again at the end, finishing up with some more examples of how to follow leaders well. So for our purposes, what I want to do is, is, is pick those two sections apart. To talk about how to follow faithful leaders, which is what this main, the main idea of the text 
uh, communicates to us. And then look at that middle section after that, which is, I think, where leaders are supposed to take us, where we should follow them. Now, if you found Hebrews chapter 13, let's go ahead and read the passage together. And if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 7 to 19. This is the word of the Lord. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. How to follow faithful leaders. As I mentioned, I think that is the gist of of the the brackets on this passage. Starting in verse 7 and then picking back up again in verse 17 and, and, and through 19. It's tips on how you're to relate to those whom whom God has placed in your congregation to lead you. I think there are three ways that this text points us to following leadership well. Three ways to following leadership well. How we're to follow faithful leaders. And the first is in verse 7. The command here is to remember your leaders and to imitate them. To remember your leaders and to imitate them. Based on the way this verse reads, most people think that it's a reference to past leaders, to those leaders who maybe founded this congregation, who were the first to tell these people about Jesus, who gave them their introduction to the way of Christianity and lived it out for them in a way that showed them practically what to do. It's almost like he's calling you to look at their life as a whole, at someone who has either died already or is nearing the end of their life so that you can see the whole thing. You can see that their faith wasn't a flash in the pan, but it, it held them up and sustained them through all the ups and downs that a, that a full human life is bound to experience. That's, that's the kind of leaders that he's talking about, not so much the ones that are over them at that time. And what he's calling them to remember and to imitate is the faith that these leaders had. He's calling them to remember what they told them and to remember where their lives ended up. I think that verse 8 gives us a summary of the kind of thing, the kind of things that these leaders were communicating. Really, what it, the, where this call to remember their word and to follow the outcome of their life comes from 
hinted at in verse 9 is that they had competing options for how they were going to live their lives, for how they were going to approach God. Verse 9 refers to some sort of strange and diverse teachings. Some people who were maybe telling them something to do with food, that you have to eat or not eat these certain things if you want to please God. And he's, he's saying, this is not what your leaders originally told you. They told you something far different. What they told you, the word of God that they communicated, and what their life proved to you by living well for this gospel is that Jesus and Jesus only is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Really, that verse summarizes so much of what this letter has been about. I wish we had time to really show you all the ties between the keywords in this verse and the themes that we've already covered in Hebrews. It's a beautiful, beautiful summary. Jesus is the Christ, the one who came to give himself as the anointed one on behalf of his people. He's the perfect sacrifice that makes us clean once and for all. And he doesn't change where everything else in our lives does. Where death calls for all of us, Jesus has triumphed over it and defeated it so that he can be the same for those in the past that he was there for, for those of us today who own his name, and for those of us who look to him to give us life beyond the grave. Jesus is the same. He can be good for it. So what you need, what they're to remember, is that there's no call for any sort of substitute. These sort of rules like the ones that they were maybe being tempted towards, these food laws that were external, nothing more than external props to help give them a clear set of things that they could check off of a list. Those things have no life, he's saying. Instead, what you need is to be strengthened by grace. That's verse 9. What you need is to be strengthened by grace, changed from the inside out, so that you start to be who you are, children of God, who rest secure in Him. That's what their leaders taught them. That was the word of life. And that's what they proved by their lives. Remember back in chapter 11, this author of this letter has been all about pointing you to models, you know, like models from the Old Testament especially, saying, look at this whole life and how it was lived from beginning to end. This is a person, here's his phrase, that, that through faith gave substance to the things that were hoped for. What we, what we said about chapter 11 is that what faith does is takes these promises that are, that are in the future that still we can't see fully and it plants them in the middle of life and lives like they're true now. And by, see, by testing them in that way, proves them. Faith is the proof of those promises. And by looking at the whole of life of these leaders in their past, they can see faith proven because it held them up. That's what he's calling them to. And that's what he's calling us to, I think, is to identifying people in our lives, maybe those who first told us about Jesus, maybe, maybe figures from church history or even the, the biblical models that this author points us to, and to really deeply considering how faith governed the way that they lived, how they proved by their life that Jesus is the same and is enough yesterday, today, and forever. That's what he's calling them to here. That's the first thing. Remember them and imitate, not their conduct, Don't just try to copy the things that they do. Imitate their faith, the engine that drove who they were. That's the gist of verse 7. The second thing is where we begin to trip up. The second way that we're supposed to relate to and follow faithful leaders comes to us in verse 17, where we're told, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and... And submit to them. If, if that first command seems to relate to past leaders who maybe have even died already, maybe are even historical or biblical figures, this command seems clearly to relate to the people who are over their church at that time. 
And so most agree it's, it's the elders of the church that's in, that's in view. Those who the church has appointed uh, as, as men given by God to lead the congregation, to give guidance to its life, to care for the souls of those who are in it, to teach, to set the agenda for that church. That's, who we, that's who's in view here. And they're told to obey and submit to them. So this is where we've got to get really, really clear on the details. It makes sense to wonder about submission to authorities, to human authorities, about whether or not you should follow earthly leaders, even church leaders, in the way this text seems to call for because of how we understand human nature, right? We understand all humans to be fallen, to be driven by selfish impulses, to be limited in their perspective, to just not be able to see the whole picture because sin, sin is the kind of glasses that we wear that colors how we see things, to, to be subject to pride and insecurity. And in a church our size, most of you know us elders, and you've probably tasted in one way or another our limitations as, as men and as leaders. I want to begin by stating clearly that I don't think this call in verse 17 to obedience and submission is a call to sort of check your brain at the door and do whatever you're told. Um, the, 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 the New Testament is full of references that show that is, that is not a healthy way to relate to your leaders because your leaders are fallen. So Paul, for example, in his letter to the Galatians, says if anybody else comes to you, if any other leader, even an angel from heaven, comes preaching some other gospel than the one that I've taught you, then you need to run from them. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. Run away, even if it's an angel. So the gospel is bigger than any one leader. Uh, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul gives instructions for how a congregation is to remove an elder who falls into sin. An elder who is repeatedly, publicly living out of step with what Jesus' lordship commands is someone who the congregation is to take responsibility for and, and pull out of that position. So it shows that there's not just, as, not just the, the gospel over leaders, but, but ethical Christ-like living is a standard leaders are held to. And then in 1 Peter 5, leaders are warned against lording it over those they lead just for sort of selfish gain, to do what they want with their people and just almost sort of a power trip. So I think that the interests of the people that you lead stand over elders and hold them in check. And should they ever stop prioritizing those interests, their leadership is invalid. It's illegitimate. Authority is a gift of God, but authoritarianism is a poison. And that's why, just to get real practical and and, and concrete in our own church life, that's why there are a lot of safeguards built in for our leadership. These are safeguards we see playing out in the New Testament. They aren't things we came up with. There's more than one of us elders. So that in a sense, we're submitting to each other. So that I just can't do whatever I want to because Bill and Drew are going to hold me in check. And the same thing goes for either of those guys. We're submitting to each other. We are appointed and affirmed by a congregation of people who are setting us aside for this role. So there's an accountability to the congregation. And ultimately, we're all submitting to the same covenant of promises that we make for how we're going to live towards each other, how we're going to love each other well, the standards that we're going to hold each other to. So the elders of this church live under the authority of that covenant. But all these are caveats, right? These are all the things that this command doesn't mean. 
What we want to do is not be put off by the ways authority can be abused so badly that we can't see the liberating and life-giving effects of faithful authority in the church's life. And that's what this text is pointing us to. What does it look like to obey and submit uh, to the leaders in your congregation? John Piper put it this way. I think, he, I think he's right on. This is a comment on this verse, verse 17. He says that this verse means that a church should have a bent towards trusting its leaders. Get that? They should have a bent towards trusting their leaders. You should have a disposition to be supportive in your attitudes, he continues, and your actions towards their goals and directions. You should want to imitate their faith, and you should have a happy inclination to comply with their instructions. What he's talking about here, I think, is a, a sort of default mode towards your leaders, a, a deference towards your leaders that understands their leadership as something God has given to you, not imposed on you, as a gift that is meant to help you and cultivate you, not suppress you. It's meant, I think what we're, we're pointing to in verse 17, is seeing leaders as an extension of God's authority in our lives, as God's setting up delegates who, who serve his purposes by pointing us towards holiness and growth, that that's how we're supposed to view them. And this passage, verses 17 and 18, or especially actually verse 17, they point us to what makes faithful leaders worth following in this way. You know, if, if what this verse calls for is for us to have a bent towards trusting them and following them, to, to not always be throwing up red flags or roadblocks in front of them, if, if we're supposed to default towards trust and leadership, this verse also gives us hints at why we should, at why it's a good thing to follow faithful leaders. There are a couple of them. One is, one is in this little phrase that, that they give, that they are keeping watch over your souls. I think that, that gives us a hint to what a faithful leader is all about and why they're worth trusting. A faithful leader in a congregation doesn't lead his people to get what he can out of his people. He doesn't lead his people for the status that his leadership gives him. He doesn't lead his people, in other words, for any sort of self-interested goal or ambition. He leads his people for their own good, to try to get out of them what is best for them. He leads for their souls, for the sake of their souls. And this... This word really struck me. My translation says uh, keeping watch over, but uh, uh, one of the commentaries that I read says a literal translation of that word is that your leaders go sleepless over your souls. And I can testify to you from my experience and on behalf of Bill and Drew that that is exactly what happens. Godly leadership, faithful leadership is about getting involved in people's lives even when those Lives have mess in them, right? Even when we're, we're dealing with people who, like us, are broken and hurting, and to hear about what's in their life that's troubling them is to take that on as a kind of burden. It is to have it in your mind and to carry it around with you during your days, and it is to lay in your bed at night staring at the ceiling because you can't get them off of your mind because you know that not only do you now know about their problem, but it has become your problem in every sense of the word. Because faithful leadership is responsible not just for knowing about these things, but for pointing the soul towards growth, towards taking that soul by the hand and leading them out of whatever it is that's holding them back. That's our responsibility. And that is something that keeps us awake at night. And if your leaders lead you for your good in that way, then they're worth trusting. It is no 
It is, it is no, it, it, no deficit in your life to default towards following their leadership because you know they're for you. The second detail in this verse that, that points at why this kind of leadership is worth following is a reminder that it is not primarily leadership for, for their own sake or even for the, the sake of the congregation, but leadership under the authority of God himself. Verse 17 is a terrifying verse for any church elder to have to read. Because what it says is that we keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There's, there's a lot of mystery that hangs over what it's like as a believer to face judgment. But the New Testament has several references to this, that somehow at the end of, at the end of days we will give an account of our lives before God. And that even knowing that Jesus is enough to make us acceptable to him, even knowing that his promises are yes to us in Christ, we will be held to account and it will not be a pleasant experience. I don't know how that all works out, but I know that it's terrifying because what it says about your leaders is that they are responsible before God for you in a very real sense, that how they guide you, how they cultivate you is not something that that is ever going to be missed by God's all-seeing eye. That ultimately, this is to use a reference from Peter, I think that helps flesh out this this verse. Ultimately, they rule as under-shepherds. They are shepherding, 1 Peter says, the flock of God. You are not our flock, but God's. And the way that we lead you is something God cares very deeply about. If your leaders have a sense that that's the stakes and how they do their job, it drives them towards leading not for their own sake, but for yours. And that's the kind of leadership, a sort of delegated leadership, an under God leadership that's worth trusting in your life. And I think the point of this passage is that it's for your good, that that ultimately God set the church up to work this way because this is the best way that it could work. Because you need something from these leaders that you could not get on your own. That there is a a grace communicated to you through their leadership that is essential for your growth as a Christian. So here's the question for you. I think we've done a lot of of caveats here to show you how what, what submission doesn't mean. And I think that that's fair, especially in our cultural climate. We need to do that work to help this text land. But where it would land for you, I think, is that I think what you've got to ask yourself is what role does submission play in your walk with Christ? In what way are you seeking out, even, submission and obedience that's described in this text? With all its caveats in place, there's still a point here, and I fear that we have lost it because we're so scared of any kind of authority in our lives. I think that it would be fruitful for you to spend time thinking about how you relate to leadership in your life. Because though there may come a time when, when you should leave leaders that are not leading you faithfully, you should never do that without recognizing the stakes of that decision. Because just as God holds leaders accountable for the way that they lead you, so he holds you accountable for the way that you respond to the leadership in your life. And you don't want to be wrong about that. 
I want us to reclaim leadership as a good and as a blessing. Pray towards that end. And here's the third and final thing. This is, this is the, the last piece of advice about how to follow faithful leaders well. It's in verse, 19, or verse 18. Pray for us, the author says, for we are sure we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I think what he's getting at is that if leaders are accountable to God in the way that it's described here, and if their job is to lead souls out of bondage and into freedom, out of darkness and into light, then their job is a job that no human can ever pull off. Leaders ultimately are still subject to fear and to pride and to selfishness and insecurity. And our leadership requires of us a supernatural kind of selflessness. So how are we going to get that? How are we going to pull that off unless God's Spirit changes who we are? Unless His Spirit overwhelms us in our leadership? And that's something that only happens as a result of prayer. We're aiming, just as this author notes here, to have a clear conscience in what we do and to be honorable in all the things that we do. And we are not honorable and of clear conscience on our own. So pray. That's the call. How could any of us, knowing that God holds us accountable for our leadership, face that task apart from the power of prayer? So here's your question. Do you pray for your leaders? Do you regularly pray for those that God has appointed to serve your congregation? Do you pray for wisdom? Do you pray for sexual fidelity? Do you pray for perseverance when when strength is not up to the task? Do you pray for their families that they will be... They will, they will learn the right balance between protecting and insulating their families and involving their families in this great work. Are you praying these sorts of things for your leaders? I think that's what this text calls you to. And it'd be for your good and for theirs. Now, here's where I want to end. The second point comes in this middle section that I mentioned. So the, the passage starts on leadership, ends on leadership. And in the middle, he gets distracted almost by thinking about all that Jesus offers us by how Jesus is worth giving everything to obtain. And I think in this, it's not really a distraction. I think in this middle section, he shows us what leadership is all about, like what leaders are supposed to be guiding you towards. Any leadership that's worth following, that's worthy of God and his gospel, is a a leadership that will be leading you here to the essence of this section and to what the whole letter has been talking about, and that is a persevering faith, a faith that can face the loss of everything that makes this life seem comfortable and pleasing, a faith that can separate you, see you separated from family, from friends, from property, from liberty, and still persevere. Think about how often this has come up in, in the letter. We've been told to pay attention and not to drift away. We've been told to hold fast our confidence and our confession. We've been told to be careful of and to urge each other against an unbelieving heart. We've been told not to, fe- to fear not reaching God's rest. We've been told to press on to maturity. We've been told to run the race that's before us with endurance and not shrink back. We've been told to run it like those who were faithful before us. The whole letter is littered full of these 
references to perseverance. And I think this passage on leadership shows that the leader's main goal and responsibility, where you should be following them, is to a faith that perseveres even when everything else about this life is difficult. And that's the kind of faith that's only possible when you see Jesus as a reward that's worth losing everything else in your life to obtain. That's the contribution, I think, of this image that comes to us in the middle of our passage. Because in verses 10 to 16, we get this new image for Jesus and what he's done. We get it, it's drawn straight out of the way that the sacrifices used to be practiced in the Old Testament. What they would do is a priest would take the animals, they would sacrifice them in the holy place, and then they would take them outside of the camp and burn them. It's the, the outside of the camp was the place of, of garbage, of refuse and dung, a place of shame, a place where lepers were forced to live because they were unfit to be in the city. And then our, our author says that Jesus also suffered outside the gate, literally and figuratively, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is what Jesus has done for us. And that means... This central image, it grounds a call to us and a call, a, a call that, that all faithful leaders worth their salt will be calling you to embrace. Go to him. Go to him outside the camp. I think that this whole letter has been nothing if not realistic about the kinds of things that faith, like genuine life-shaping faith, can cost you. This is a letter written to people who were being thrown into prison and, and facing death even because they identify with Jesus. And this, this letter doesn't, color, doesn't, doesn't candy coat that. And this sort of life, this sort of outside the camp existence where you go to Jesus there and you bear the kind of reproach that he, that he bore, where you, where you suffer shame and rebuke and maybe even physical torture, that's the kind of, that, that's the kind of life that just doesn't make sense unless you're living for something that is worth it. That you're living for something that, that can't be limited to the terms of this world and what success and comfort look like here. Unless you, can, you can only go to him, in other words, if you believe that Jesus not only offers you some great gift, but is himself some great gift. Unless you have a clear and vivid sense that Jesus is the reward worth losing everything to obtain. That's the point of this whole letter, is to talk him up and to give him such a beautiful image in your mind that you will leave everything to follow him, even if it means leaving the camp. The camp is the image for all that's secure and comfortable and familiar, and it's what we're called to give up. I wish we could do more to understand and connect with why Jesus is the kind of reward that's worth that kind of sacrifice. And this letter has done its heavy lifting. It's pictured Jesus for us as as a priest king, as a death-defeating champion, as a creator, as a revealer of God's word, as a sacrifice that's more powerful than any other, as a faithful servant who always did what was right without exception, as one who represents the presence of God and brings us into his presence. But for me, I'm guessing for some of you too, those concepts are, are terribly abstract for me. It's difficult for me to really taste and see the beauty of a priest king as a reward. 
Right? We've done some work towards that. I think, I think I've come to some more clarity on that, but they still, these concepts, these, these, these doctrinal principles remain, I think, distant and abstract in some way. So what we've got to do, I think our work as Christians is looking for images that in our experience that help us to taste the beauty of these things that are true about Jesus so that we see him as the reward that Scripture describes him as. I, I, this is where precise doctrinal formulations break down, and we have to grasp at images in its place. Here are a few that have helped me. Seeing Jesus as, as the essence of the city that is to come, as the goal that I'm going towards, I think being with him and, and receiving him like that would be something like the joyful rest that's the reward of a hard week's work. Those rare weeks where you get to the end of it and you feel like you got everything done that you needed to, where there's no regrets, there's nothing hanging over your head, and you can kick back with friends and just watch football on Saturday night. That has a taste to it. That kind of rest, that kind of completeness has a taste to it. And that is what Jesus gives us. It's like the joy of finishing some big project, of doing it well and having it affirmed. There's a lot of wrong ways to receive affirmation. And here, I mean, we're drawing near the end of the semester. A lot of you guys are preparing these kinds of projects. Um, you're waiting on that affirmation, and you know what it feels like to celebrate Thanksgiving break or Christmas break at the end of a project that was well-received. There's a bad way to, to take that affirmation. There's a prideful way, but there's a good, right way to enjoy work well done for the glory of God. That affirmation has a feeling to it. And Jesus is a reward in that way. Getting Jesus is the only affirmation that really matters. He's, he is, his is the one that we can't possibly earn. It's the one that we don't deserve, but we get because we're with him. We are pleasing to God this letter has told us time and again. I think it's like the joy of seeing my wife again after a long trip. Those of you who are married know what I'm talking about. If, if you're single, I'm sure you've experienced exactly the same thing with, with good friends or with parents. You think, I, think, I think of it in terms of like an international trip where I've been away for a couple of weeks and there's all these flights that are in between me and getting home, and she becomes she starts to become symbolic almost of home and of rest, and I, and I can think to myself of that reward waiting on the other end. I can make it through two more connecting flights because at the end of it, I'm going to see her again. I'm going to get to talk to her again, hold her again. We're going to share our meals together and watch our favorite shows together and play with our kids together again. She, she comes to represent the peace and the joy and the rest, the reward of finishing a journey, and Jesus is like that. He is a place of rest and peace and joy, a place of belonging. Perhaps most mysteriously, Jesus is a reward worth giving everything for in the same sense that anything good about this world is rewarding. Fill in that blank with whatever you want. Because what we're told is that everything in this world that we experience, all the good and the beauty in it, is created by Jesus. And it was created to reflect the glory of God. That means that everything that's in it that's worthy is ultimately only a, a pale reflection of something that's in, infinitely more worthy in him. That whatever we enjoy about this life, we'll enjoy on a whole other level when we get to the city that is to come. That, that ultimately what, what limits every joy we experience in this life is its transience, right? That it ends, you know? You, I, I, I'm enjoying the early years of parenting. I keep being told by folks who are past that phase in their parenting that it just goes by so quickly 
that, it, that it's, it is such a joy and it's a breath and then it's gone and I'm starting to see that already. It's almost like I can, I can see the handwriting on the wall. Vacations are like this, right? You put so much stock in them. You, you wait for them on, like on the edge of your seat with your whole life and, and then by the time you get there on day one, you're already thinking about the fact that you're going to have to go home. Friendships are like this. They can change. They move away. They, they end. Good books are like this, right? Is there anything that better expresses the the wonder and beauty of God as creator than than the ability of someone made in his image to create a captivating, insightful, compelling story. But those stories end. Everything that we love about this world is going to be represented in the new one because Jesus is going to be there and everything that we love about this world is just a pale reflection of all that he is. He is a reward in the sense that anything is rewarding. Earlier, a few weeks back, I talking about another passage that sort of pushes us down this line and I, I, I cited one of my favorite parts of the Chronicles of Narnia where they're, they're coming it's in, it's in the, the final book in the series and they're coming into the new world and they, they, they notice that it looks very familiar and they realize that why it looks familiar is that everything they loved about the old world they loved only because it reminded them of this world they had not been to I think we could tweak that just a bit and say what we, that what we love, what, what everything that we love about this world is pointing us to is not just some new world, but to Jesus himself. That he is what we love best about the things we love in this world. And in that sense, he is the reward that's worth giving up everything, even going outside the camp for life, if we can obtain him. One of my favorite hymns pictures this for us. In, in language that is just beautiful. It's, a, it's an old hymn called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight. But day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams of earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean fullness, his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O well, it is forever, O well forevermore. My nest hung in no forest of all this death-doomed shore. Yea, let the vain world vanish as from the ship the strand, while glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O I and my beloved's, and my beloved's mine, he brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And here's where he brings it home. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, not at the things that he gives to us, right? But on his pierced hand, because the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. That is a reward that we can barely imagine. It is a reward that's worth seeking even outside the camp. So let us go to him together. Father, help us 
to see what is so difficult to see. The beauty of the promises that are ours in Jesus. Liberate us from the deadness of heart that keeps us from seeing who we are on our own and keeps us from loving who you will promise who you promise to make us to be. We we are so unworthy of this gift. But we would claim it. We would live for it. For Jesus' sake. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.